Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, morning, afternoon, evening. Welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, we're joined by Erica Waller. Her debut published novel is Dog Days. Uh, It's out now. It's both beautiful and and heartbreaking. It, It treads that line between light and shade absolutely stunningly. Uh, we talk about her her struggles of getting published and then the joy in when it finally happened. You can hear about the beat sheet that she thinks of to help her plot. And we discuss how she copes with the feeling, you know, the feeling almost the, the guilt of when the words just won't come out. So you just have to be honest and realistic and go, you know, today I can write and I'll do my best and tomorrow I might not be able to. There's no point beating yourself up about it. It's supposed to be an enjoyable process. It's people that write is in you and it wants to come out but there's no you can't force it out and you can't hate yourself for what you're producing now there is more on the way with erica waller in this week's writer's routine yes welcome along it's it's writer's routine my name's dan simpson this is where we take a look inside an author's working day uh now there are like over 150 episodes there or thereabouts i think of the show and one of the best bits about having that backlog uh, except that almost by definition listening figures go up is that people are pretty much at different stages of listening to the show all the time like you might be listening to this when it comes out at the end of april 2021 you might be a little bit later in the year you might have found us 10 years down the line if it's still going let me know how i get on by the way now because of that i'm always reminded of different things that we've done on the show when people are discovering them for the first time a few years later uh now do you remember this a little while ago i was asking for writing tips from anyone not just the guests on the show but everyone i wanted to know writing tips uh, and I got an email recently from Harriet Evans, who's over in Sydney, and said sometimes she feels like the only writer that's there. Uh, Harriet, thank you for this, over on the contact page at writersroutine.com. Harriet says, um, my writing tip, I've broken up my book into chapters, and I've put each one into a separate Google Doc. Uh, we talk about Scrivener a lot on the show, don't we? I think that's kind of what this is, just on an online cloud version. Harriet says that you can then write and edit them on the go. 
It's really easy, and you can even make the docs available offline. So she finds herself making small edits wherever she is. If she's on the train, on the bus, or watching telly, she picks the Google Doc that she wants, she finds the chapters, and she can make edits on the go. It, uh, she says that it keeps her involved in the story, and it keeps her making progress uh, through small windows of time. Harriet, thank you so much for that. Uh, hopefully that's helpful. I love the tip. I also love the fact that maybe, Harriet, you won't hear this for like a little while. Who knows? might be another year. We might still be in a form of lockdown when you hear that a few months down the line. Uh, Perfect. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Harriet. Uh, And you can send your writing tip, by the way. Should we start that again? Yeah, why not? If you want to send your writing tip, uh, hit me up. It's writersroutine.com. Now, this week, we're chatting to Erica Waller, a journalist, blogger, and uh, she's got a new novel out, her debut published book. It's called Dog Days. And the play on words in the title kind of sums up the whole book. It's not just a story about dogs and how they meet and how they influence lives and, and make life worth living. It's also about the dark times, the, the dog days of depression. I mentioned earlier, the story treads the line between light and shade, between beauty and tragedy just stunningly well. Now, we talk about how seeing her favourite band at a festival led to her writing the story. Also, about how a concentrated amount of, of tragedy gave her a, a, more of the idea for the book and how maybe it makes her think differently to other people. You can hear how she balances writing uh, and being present for her family as well. Uh, why she's simply writing for fun at the moment with knowledge that what she's working on ain't going to get published. And we talk right through really nitty-gritty of her writing day as well. Now, you might remember uh, last week we had some tech troubles. Uh, This week it's pretty fine. We recorded this through Zoom, though, which can make the sound a little bit annoying. But it's a brilliant chat with Erica, so worth sticking around for talking about dog days. And we kick things off, as we always do, talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, I'm sitting at my desk, so out the window, I'm not bragging, I can see the sea, I can see Brighton Pier and Brighton Marina, and I can see the windmill, which is where the book is set. I can also see some logs that have fallen over from my wood burner, and obviously my lovely office full of all the things that inspire me, pictures and drawings and quotes for women paraphernalia. Describe some of those drawings to us. I can see your room right now, and um, I mean, it, it looks like a busy place. You don't seem to be one of those sparse minimalist people. Like, there's a there's a lot going on. Just kind of take us around it if you can. Um, so this is like my room of inspiration. Uh, so anything that catches my eye, I've got a big thing about the suffragettes. I've got a big thing about inspirational women. I've got three daughters, so I try and thrust angry feminist literature down them so the room is awash with really graphic naked photos of women some artwork that people have sent me oh and also I think maybe if I angle in that corner you can see my collection of vintage teddies pretty important to me so this is just my anything that makes me happy anything that makes me smile and that sofa there is uh, to nap on because I have rheumatoid arthritis um, and I have to sleep in the day so I sleep with my head on those see those breasts Pillow breast. Everybody needs a bosom for a pillow. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> that old classic. Um, yeah, it's 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 <laughs> yeah. a uh, it's a it's a big cushion uh, with with boobs in it, which you know everyone's a fan of. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, is any of it just, if it, is any of it distracting? I, I've been to writers' rooms before, 
And some of them are quite sparse with maybe just a few plot points knocking around, maybe the odd picture or books behind them. Uh, do you find yourself distracted in, in your very busy room? No, because my computer is actually facing a white wall. So you can see a lot of colour behind you. But what I'm looking at, but like apart from your lovely face, I've just got a white wall here. And then the only, I can get distracted looking at buses going up and down the road. But I'm pretty, um, I'm quite a focused individual. I've worked in journalism and for years. So deadlines, I'm quite deadline driven. So when I'm writing, I just get into that mindset, like, right, get the work done. So now I just look into my white corner. Talking about getting into that mindset, is there anything that is there anything that helps you get into it? Like, do you need like a little bit of time just to drop in maybe a cup of coffee or are you, you know, just brilliant at going, right, I'm here to work. Let's get cracking. No, I'm not brilliant. I'm not brilliant at anything uh, apart from tidying up, according to my children. Um, I like to I can't start the day without like a pint of tea. This is, you know, so tea made in a pot, a mix of Earl Grey and breakfast tea not that I'm a pedantic about it but um normally I will get up sometimes I will have a cup of tea and come in straight away depending on what the children and my husband are doing with work and the pandemic and stuff but I quite often like to run before I start writing I've got a treadmill in the garage because again with my arthritis I can't run outside anymore but I do find um the treadmill is a bit of a whiteboard for me and it really clears my mind like crystallizes my thoughts so I run drink tea write well, well, let's let's get to this formally then. So the show is writer's routine, Erica. Kind of talk me through yours. So the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing, talk me through the whole thing. Like, when will you wake up? When will you get on the treadmill? When will you get to it? When will you give yourself breaks? Talk me through that. Um, okay, I'd just like to preempt this. With some days I just don't get out of bed because uh, things hurt or I don't, I, you know, I'd like to let people know how I do it, but it's really important for me to let people know that some days just don't get off the ground for me at all because of various reasons. So on a good day, I get up about eight, half seven, eight o'clock. I have a pot of tea with the children. They would go to school or do their learning. I would then go on the treadmill for half an hour, 40 minutes. I can't run very fast. It's just more of a mental thing. And then I will probably have some food, banana, peanut butter. I'm not a very good cook, so I'm more of a forager. Unless somebody feeds me, I'll just find things out the fridge and eat them with no. And I think maybe that's a lot of things with writers. Like you don't want to, you just eatings. You need to eat, but you don't really want to go and make a sandwich. So you just like, I'll just take the pot of peanut butter and I'll take this knife and this banana you know, make a meal. What's interesting about that is we were talking earlier about how you're not a cat person, but it sounds very much like a cat's diet. Foraging, just finding what's going on. It's true. I am part feline, it seems. This is uh I didn't say I don't like I didn't say I don't like cats. It's just I had a really horrible cat and that that I I feel really bad so I had a really horrible, horrible cat. I couldn't put my toe out from under the cover because she would bite my toe off. I just she was evil. She was I mean, I think she was the spirit of my grandmother, who was also a pretty evil woman. Anyway, when I get to the computer, I am I try to write a chapter a day. I try and write in the order of the book. So I won't, uh, I will write whatever is the next thing coming up. I won't jump to one that's easier. And I try and write about 1,500 to 2,000 words each time. It takes me probably about three, three and a half hours with a couple of breaks. And that's it. I don't reread it. I leave it and then the next day I'll reread what I wrote the day before and use that as a springboard. Because getting published was a dream of mine for so long, 
I still kind of was treating it very much like a dream, but actually it, it has become a job, not in a negative way, but it, it is a job. And now I'm kind of working on book two. I have become a lot better at going, it's just, it's my work and I'm not going to work today. Whereas historically, every day I would try and write something, but now I'm much better at kind of saying, do you know what? I've done the work I plan to do today and now I'm going to step away from it. It's difficult because nobody else is going to write the book for you. It's not a nine to five job where you clock in and clock out. And there is always that pressure like, what happens if I die and I haven't finished the book? There's these kind of quite dramatic, anxious thoughts of a writer. But um, I think I've just learned some days you're not going to write well. Some days you're going to write loads. And as you say, I'm a mum. I've got three young kids. Well, not that young anymore, but and they need me, you know. So I do my work here and then I go and watch TV with them or watch them do rubbish on the trampoline. And that's it's really important to get your balance right. On those days, uh, because, you know, you want to paint your writer's life as real as it is on the days where you, you can't really get anything done. You, 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 you know, you can't get out of bed uh, for reasons. Uh, are you like, how do you feel when that's happening? like without kind of laboring on this point and making it appear, you know, more like more depressing than it might be. Are you kind of, do you feel a bit guilty for that? Are you like, Christ, I should be getting to my book today. And I, I, I bloody can't again because you know, I'm knackered and stuff like that. Um, sometimes if I haven't written and I feel I should have, I'll go onto the computer about eight or nine o'clock at night and maybe do some work. So yeah, I think there's guilt there. I mean, I've, um, I've had a couple of stabs at doing a second book since Dog Days and they haven't um, been the right one with my agent and my editor. So I have actually done an awful lot of writing over the last 18 months and it's not going to be used, which is fine. It's a learning curve. It's not, you know, but I haven't actually started knuckling down um, or having another attempt at it in a minute. So I'm not actively writing right now I'm I'm writing a book for pleasure that I know won't get published and I do that a little bit every day just because I really like the book but it isn't gonna you know it's a it's a project for me but when I do start on the second book once the pitch has been decided and everybody's kind of locked into it I will probably try and work I don't know four days a week on it but no more than that because you can't I mean you might wake up in the middle of the night and have this amazing image come to you that you need to email to yourself immediately. But my days of getting up at four in the morning to write have gone. I wouldn't do that anymore. And on the days when it's bad, you know, with rheumatoid arthritis, you can feel fine one day. I can run 10K on my treadmill and then the weather can turn and I can't get out of bed the next day. So I can't sit at the computer because my fingers my neck are too sore or my fingers won't work or um I'm often on steroids which are high doses and I'm just mental there's no point talking with me let alone giving me a keyboard so you just have to be honest and realistic and go you know today I can write and I'll do my best and tomorrow I might not be able to there's no point beating yourself up about it it's supposed to be an enjoyable process it's people that write it's in you and it wants to come out but there's no you can't force it out and you can't hate yourself for what you're producing you can't every word is valid and some days they come and some days they just don't. It's interesting that you're, you, you know, continuing to play around and write for fun while you're not, I, 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 you've not found that second book. I, I, but when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You know, if I were, if you were a, uh, like a footballer or something, you couldn't, you know, not, not play football for a year and suddenly you expect to get back on the pitch and, and to play at your full force, surely. Well, I think the thing is, um, 
the market is quite dictating of which books people are reading, what kind of books people want to read, how plot-driven books are, how character-driven you know, books are. So when you're writing a book for publication, you need to be aware of an awful lot of stuff, trends in the marketplace and um, other books that have come out recently. There's a lot to kind of imagine there. But for pleasure, you can write the stories that you want to write, like the gentle, funny stories with the characters you enjoy without the pressure of, right, where's this plot twist? Where's this character development? You know, the things that when you're writing for work, you have to really make sure you've locked down. Again, I don't, I don't want this to become a, you know, a really, a real like worthy, sad piece, but I'm just interested. And, and you, you, you've mentioned working on something and taking it to your editor and, and your agent, and it's not quite worked. How does that feel as an author when you are quite set on an idea and then the market dictates what other people are doing says that hang on no no one is up for reading this at the moment you need to do something else how's that it's it's hard I think um it is hard and it's embarrassing uh it, you feel ashamed and embarrassed and you feel like you've let your agent and your editor down but then you just you haven't and it's not that you've not written something good it's not that you haven't written something valuable it's that in the publishing world you have to have a lot of people buying into a book you know they say a book has to be sold six times before it goes to the shop. You know, I have to sell it to my agent. My agent has to sell it to the editor. The editor has to sell it to at least three or four people in the publishing houses before they'll agree to pick it up. And then the publishing houses have to sell it to the indie bookshops and Waterstones. So you're not talking about one person liking this book. You're talking about a big chain. And it, it's a business. While writing is a very personal, emotional thing to do, the publishing world is a business. It's there to make money. And books have to... They have to be a book that will suit the market and, to be fair, will get the most out of you as a writer. You know, the books that are the best books you're going to write will be the books that you really wrestle with and they're quite hard for you. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's like Bon Jovi said, a poet just needs that pain. Uh, when you are... When... I was joking. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, please, I always love a Bon Jovi quote. Come on, when you good, um, good. when you are when you do walk away from the uh, you know, the editing, the publishing house, and you've been told, you know what, it's not this one this time. Uh, how is the process of going back to the drawing board? Like, what's stage one in you then trying to get the new project? How do you go about that aspect? Stage one is crying, demanding your husband drives to the nearest cine world and buy you four pints of pick and mix, and then there's the I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I've let everybody down. I'll never write again. I'm useless. Lying on the floor while your children ineffectively straight your hair and pass your dogs. And then you go, do you know what? I'm really lucky because I've got an amazing editor. I've got an amazing agent that want the best possible thing for me. And they're pushing me to come out my comfort zone. And then you just think, yeah, let's just get back up again. And then you go back to the drawing board and you think what's relevant. You know, it's very hard. Characters kind of come to me and I'm not sure where they come from. They kind of come into my head and then they sit there and the story kind of comes from them and their journey. So but when I was writing Dog Days, I did something called the Snyder Beat Sheet. I don't know whether you've heard of it. It's used in theatre. And it's like a, um, I think maybe it's 12 or 15 kind of bullet points that most plays, if you go to see them, they'll have an opening theme and then they'll have... Um, setting the scene, fun and games, bad guys closing, dark night of the soul. They're these kind of names that the play will bounce along, all is lost, you know, the hero storms the castle. 
And I used that for dog days to make sure that the plot kept bouncing along. And using that, it means that about 25,000 words in it will be like, what's happening now? Where's the twist? Why are we still invested? By this point, the character needs to be doing A, B, C, D. And it was a really fantastic thing. And interestingly, I didn't do it for the two books I attempted after dog days. I think I was slightly arrogant. I thought, oh, I'm brilliant now. I don't need to work at the plot. It will come to me. So actually, it was just a learning curve. It was like, do you know what? That early work I put into dog days to really make sure that the book had a heartbeat and it had a pace and everybody was moving to the end conclusion. I've gone back and I've done that for a couple of um, of other ideas that I've had. And I feel quite excited. I do. I feel kind of, yeah. It's a fun process, actually, when you it's just like you get a lot of chocolate and you get some post-it notes and you use these bullet points to work out where your character is going to go through the book. And it's brilliant. It's a bit like, um, do you remember as a kid we used to read those books? Do you want to go into the cave? Go to page 329. Do you remember? Do you want to get on the pirate ship? Go to page 10. You're effectively doing that, but what you're going to end up with is one solid path. I'm not massively plot driven as a reader. I really like character driven books. I mean, Anne Tyler's one of my favourite authors. I really like irreverent, funny, quirky characters, and I would follow them for years and years and years. You know, I could read a book, it could never end for me. If I like a character, talk to me about them brushing their teeth, I don't mind. So I think naturally, no, it isn't something I would learn secondhand because of the type of books I like to read. I do like a thriller and I, and I do like plot, but my the books I love are always um, very, very character heavy. So I think it will always be something that naturally I have to think about. But it isn't just that, you know, the learning curve as well is if you want a book that's going to translate overseas, I have a tendency to write very local, very parochial, very English twee. And sometimes actually that's not going to translate and you know it's not going to sell in America or it's not going to translate well. So it's not just thinking about your plot, it's thinking, am I producing a piece of work that is accessible to a, to a lot of people, to a big audience? So it is this, as I say, it's not a case of being right or wrong or a bad book or a good book. It's, am I writing something that is really accessible and, and is going to be picked up by more than one type of reader? Those are the kind of questions you need to ask yourself. Let me just pop myself back in your writing room for, for a second. If I were to be sat where you are now, where I can see you, would I see a lot of, would I see clues as to what you were writing about this time round? Would I see, you know, post-it notes with plot points, uh, images that are specifically inspirational for, for that story? No, uh, you wouldn't because I did it on my computer. Again, the illness thing, but because of my RA, sometimes I can write, sometimes I can't because of my wrists. So. I have, um, I did it online this time. Last time I did kind of one on the floor with a load of post-it notes and some highlighters. But this time I just, I copied the um, the beat sheet from the internet, which is where I always find it. And then I just personalised it with my stuff. So no, as I say, all you'll see here is Snoopy paraphernalia. I've got a Dorothy and Toto pop head. I've got a bust of Winston Churchill. It's quite, you know, there's not, I think everything around me, everything I listen to, everything I read, I read a lot of books and a lot of poetry, conversations I overhear, I think they all go in my head and something just comes out. It's a bit like a sausage factory, just shove a load of stuff in one side and it comes out of something else. It sounds dreadful, 
made myself sound appalling, but it's a mental, I can't explain it. I just think that um, my subconscious does a lot of work that I, I don't know about. And I've been told I have a very good memory for childhood. I can remember loads of details about my childhood, like really, really strong details. And I think maybe that's what makes me a descriptive writer. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're back with more from Erica Waller in just a sec. I've decided this week I'm going to try to mobilize myself over on Patreon. You see, I'd always thought of it as a place where very simply you can support the show. And that's pretty much it. You know, you get a few things for doing that, and I'm very grateful of it, but I didn't really see the full potential of it. But I am becoming more and more aware to the fact that I guess we can use it as our own social network, where if you support the show over on Patreon, you can speak to other writers, we'll be in one place. You can discuss plot points and tech problems, you can get recommendations and all of that stuff. So this week I'm going to try and make that happen. Uh, If you want to be part of it, support us over on patreon if you're already doing that thank you very much keep your eyes on i guess you'll get a notification an email where i'll put up a discussion point something like that will happen uh make sure you're part of it over on patreon by doing that you can get our thanks you can get some merch 
you can even get bonus episodes and there is a way for you to make your book sponsor this show it's all happening over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine anything that you can spare will be lovingly taken i promise can be as little as you like anything going will really go a long way it'll help us carry on bringing you chats with the the best authors around as often as we can to help us out to get involved it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine Let's get back to it then with Erica Waller talking about her debut published novel, it's Dog Days. Now in this half, we talk about her characters, where they come from and how she believes they are real instantly. We also discuss the tragedy that she has seen uh, and how that influences what she sees now and how she gets ideas and how she gets those ideas down. And we pick things up talking about the new book, Dog Days. Um, Where did it come from? I'd written two books before that didn't get, um, I didn't get an agent or a publisher. They got kind of crowd published. So I have got two books out in the stratosphere already. And then um, it's a random story, but I'll try and be really quick. Went to Latitude. Louise Wiener was playing with Sleeper. Sleeper was one of my favourite bands when I was 15. We went to see her. My husband didn't believe how old she said she was, so he Googled her. Found out she ran a writing. She was a tutor at Curtis Brown Creative. She taught a writing class. My husband said, you should do that. You should try and get on her writing class. I didn't get in her writing class, actually. uh, But I wrote a thousand words. They wanted a thousand word submission. And I just, George, one of the main characters in Dog Days, kind of just came into my head. Looking back now, a few years later, here's the sum of... um, we lost, my husband and I lost, a, we've lost quite a few very, very important and close people in our lives in various horrific, sudden ways. And I think angry, bitter George somehow was all my pips of grief and confusion and sadness and missing created this kind of character. And just these, I don't know where it came from. I just suddenly wrote 1500 words about an old man waiting for his wife to come back to him from her normal book club. But she didn't come back because she died two weeks ago. And it, that I don't know where it came from, but that was it. And I sent it out to Curtis Brown and they said no. And then my husband said, why don't you just send it to Faber? They're doing a course as well. Why don't you just send it to them? So I did. And they said, yeah, you can come on our course. And then I thought, oh, I'd better have a bit more of this story. So then again, I just, chapter two kind of came out of me I don't really know how I did it which is why I think I'm struggling to do it again but that was it there was no thought I just sometimes I come to the computer I don't know I'm going to write it it doesn't feel like my brain's writing it feels like stuff's coming out my fingers does that make any sense it's not a conscious it's not a conscious thing I, I honestly don't know where these thoughts come from or why I have them or if they're ever any good well I think the point of us being here is is to maybe not understand where they come from but how you kind of channel them let me just take you back so you you got onto the Faber course what did that teach you? I mean if, if you've if you've written twice that haven't with books that haven't been uh published what are you learning there that that changes maybe the way you're writing in the future I don't have much uh, self-esteem or self-confidence so with the Faber course, you got to submit a thousand words or three thousand words, but you also got to submit a thousand words personal essays why you should be allowed on the course. Uh, and I'm quite good at um, funny, irreverent self depreciation. So I think I made a lot of jokes about how I'd love to make the tea and, you know, I'm great in a Greek, whatever. 
good with animals. So when I got on the course, I thought, oh, it wasn't because of my story. It was because of my personal essay. So um, I will always find this. I will always look for. Um, I find it very hard to go. I'm a good writer. I deserve this. That doesn't come naturally to me. So I found quite a lot of excuses. Like, oh, they'll take anyone on the favour course. You know that when you fancy somebody and then you find out they fancy you and you go, oh, they can't be any good if they fancy me. And you just, that's how I felt about the favour course. I was like, and I thought that you were a professional establishment. You'll take any Tom, Dick or Harry. That's how I felt about it. Um, I don't now, but I did. Um, so you've got this, the 1500 words or so that you wrote about George. Uh, and then you think, right, I need to turn this into a book. Uh, if you're so character driven, then what happens next? Where do you get uh, the, the other characters that, that make up the story from? How are you sat there mind mapping the other people that are going to fill 300 odd pages for you? Well, Dog Days is um, the story of three different people whose lives don't really interact, but their dogs kind of do. It's a very random thing. So really, I wrote three separate stories and then they intertwine towards the end. I wanted to write a love story, but I didn't want to write like a... Um, a chiclet thing but I, I did want to write a romance so I thought well if I write a gay romance I can be really I can make it wonderful I don't know why I thought that um but I, I sort of did and I, I really wanted to write a heartbreaking story I don't want to give any spoilers but um the book as I say it's about grief um it's about mental health, there's about domestic abuse, it's about homophobia, and it is about suicide. So there's a lot of different stuff going through it. So Dog Days, it's got a pink cover, and it seems quite light and fluffy, but it isn't. And Dog Days was a reference to depression, actually. But um, so it was more, I think, I had two things. I knew the kind of characters I wanted to write, and I knew the topics that I wanted to cover that I felt were really important. We had lost a friend to suicide, and... Um, I realised how unselfish what he did was. I always thought suicide was a really selfish thing to do. And then I went through the experience of losing somebody. And it just turned everything on its head. And I wanted to try and explore that and ex like make it accessible for people. So I needed them to invest in a character that they really, really cared about to help kind of understand. Does that make sense? So I think I had I had characters I loved and I had topics that were really important to me. Another topic was um, the idea that if men do anything, they're men, so that's fine. But if women do it, we have to find a reason. So women are either mad or bad. Like if a woman does a unladylike thing, we have to give her a reason. Whereas with men, we don't do that. We go, oh, they're men, dirty pigs. But with women, we go, but she was so nice. So again, I wanted to create a very complicated character that challenged readers' perception about mad and bad. And actually, men aren't mad or bad. Women aren't mad or bad. We're just human and we're fallible. So I had these strong things I wanted to explore and then I had really human characters. I had to create flawed people, people that were real and not necessarily likeable or lovable at times. George is horrible, but endearing by the end. So I just tried to be real. I tried to think about real traits of real people and what rounds them. And then I suppose my plot twists came in because I knew I had to hit these things that I wanted to explore, you know, domestic abuse, suicide, depression, homophobia. So that was my plot. And then my characters were very real people having to go through it. 
I don't feel like I make them up. I feel like they exist in my mind and they come to me. I think I might have a, uh, for all my insecurity, I think I have an arrogance that any character I talk about feels so real to me, I expect other people to see them as real. So I do think that's hard. You know, one of the feedbacks of the book too was that one of my characters wasn't believable. And I really wanted to defend that by going, but look at this character in this book, that's ridiculous, you know. But um, I think... There's a lot of things you can do to work on how to make sure your character's real. One of the most wonderful things you can do is interview them. So what do they have for breakfast? What toothpaste do they use? Would they have voted Brexit? What you know, you can do this kind of workshopping to make them real. But again, I think I was very, I was very lucky um, that I didn't, when the ideas came to me, they'd obviously sat there for quite a long time and they'd grown. So by the time I came to write them down, they were quite massively rounded anyway. That doesn't mean that through the editing process, I wasn't asked to add another husk or do more stuff to them. But I think I just, I was lucky in that these characters had come to me very genuine. But as I say, characters have since come to me that haven't been genuine. And you sometimes have to kill your darlings. You just have to sometimes say, do you know what? I thought this was fantastic, but it isn't translating to other people. And I can either kill myself trying to justify it and build on it, or I can just move away you know you have to just be honest with your with your characters and you talk about um these themes that you're exploring you know pretty dark themes of depression and of abuse and of uh, suicide did you have any idea when you begun writing about those how that exploration would end like what you were finding along the way how this would all resolve itself i knew very much that i wanted to um write um suicide to change opinion for people that didn't understand more about it i knew i wanted to write a complicated female character um who divided opinion a strong you know a strong troubled woman with George, I don't think I realised until afterwards I had written my grief. I don't think I realised till it's finished that what I'd done is, you know, um, I lost a friend in the Shuram air crash. Um, a friend had an aneurysm at work in front of me. I mean, I've seen I've seen death very suddenly with no explanation and no warning, and not just once, unfortunately. I'm a bit like a black widow. I feel like when I say to new people, don't make friends with me, just don't. Everyone I love dies. Just stay away. Save yourself. So, um... And I had post-traumatic stress from some of it, but I think George's, as I say, I, I think that was a real, my, I think it was a cathartic process and I didn't realise at the time I was doing, but when I read passages of George now, I think, yeah, that was, I was trying to work through something. And I was lucky that I worked through it and it made a good character and a good piece of writing. I think that was a bit of a fluke. Um, with uh, seeing so much death, like, I guess how much does that, do you think, and this might be away from writing, how much do you think that changed what, how you see everything? Like in, in the, um, uh, so way back in the, in the Harry Potter books of all things, uh, there is a moment after Harry sees his friend Cedric die and then he can see these creatures that no one else can see uh, who, are, who are pulling the chariots or whatever at Hogwarts. Um, because like he, he he's I love that you've used this example. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and and that is it's all symbolizing how he now sees the world differently. Uh what about you? Like are you writing how you are because of what you've seen and maybe because you've seen things more vividly and up close than other people, that you kind of have a better view of life, I guess. Now that might be sound quite arrogant, but you know what I mean. Run with that. 
that makes any sense. Well, there's two things to say on that. When um, I didn't, I wanted to go to um, university. I had very, very bad anxiety. Uh, it's under control now, generalized anxiety disorder. I was uh, kind of agoraphobic for a while. Is that scared of spiders or one of them? But I couldn't go out of the house. That's, yeah, that is agoraphobia, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I wasn't arachnophobic like the film. Anyway, um, and it was undiagnosed. I had it from a very young age, very undiagnosed, and uh, panic disorder. So I never got drunk. I didn't take drugs. I And I was very scared of everything. Um, and I fell into marketing uh, as a kind of sideline because I could write. And then, as I say, my friend Sarah Williams she was 37. She had three beautiful young children who are now the most amazing adults. And um, she had an aneurysm at work. I was talking with her about her nail varnish and she had an aneurysm there. And um, she passed away very, very, very shortly afterwards, leaving three children, twins and, uh, and another daughter. And I had to ring her mum and her dad and say, I think you need to get here. And after that, my life just changed because at her funeral you know Sarah was she was like a unicorn she was so intelligent so beautiful so talented but because like me she'd had kids quite young and hadn't followed her career at her funeral they were kind of struggling for her achievements not as a person but you know like when they do that list and it broke my heart because it was so I just had this moment this clear moment I thought you've got to achieve for your children because if you die when you're 37 you need to have something for that you need to have this it was a really clear thing so I dropped out of work and I went and did my journalist degree and I just left I gave up on my career you know I was running the marketing department and I just I started again and um so that was a really Sarah's death kind of taught me that life there's no guarantee we could all be dead by the end of the day which I know is really morbid but also it's really important to remember it's really vital that you kind of don't the small stuff and you look back at the bigger picture so her death was a kick up my ass to go do you know what panic can't stop you you know you've got to achieve something so that was a big driver for me and then with what you've asked about is it different when you've seen death it is because when you've seen people you know bring there are people who are like the brightest light in the room, the one always laughing, the one always helpful. You know, the one that you just never think to go, are you really okay, though? And then it changes your perception of people when you realise these people you think are fine are not always fine. And again, so many, you know, my lovely aunt who I grew up with, she'd gone and done her weekly shop, 86 years old, fell and broke her hip, died about a day later. But she's been doing her weekly shop and there's no this is cancer, this is slow, you're going to get your head around this, this is going to be relief by the time this person passes. This is a, you know that person you were just speaking with, well now they're dead and you need to just deal with that and still be a mum and a wife and a sister and a daughter. So I do think it does, I think it makes you, I am now, if I see people having a good time, it generally makes me quite tearful and I never had that before, but just seeing people enjoy themselves makes me really tearful sunset do you know the stuff that seems a bit twee um i can only explain it this way have you read um bird song by sebastian forks no i haven't actually okay so at some point read it or audible it because i find the bigger tougher books are fantastic on audible he sees untold stuff at war stuff that i will never see and you will never see you know um and at the end when everything is lost and he's so broken 
it's just hearing the birds sing and seeing nature that makes him realise he's going to be okay. And I think it's a really important message. It's the only thing that can make sense is tomorrow's still going to come and the sun's still going to rise and the birds are going to come back and the grass is going to grow. And you're just going to be there with it. And I think maybe that's what grief taught me is you just have to hold on because the next day is coming. So maybe, yeah, maybe I can see. I really like what you said. And I, I love J.K. Rowling. I think maybe I can see the ghost horses. Perhaps that's, that's one of the nicest descriptions I think I've ever heard somebody use. Thank you for that. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Erica Waller for coming on the show. You can get a copy of her debut uh, published novel, her new one, it's Dog Days. Uh, you can find that, get a link wherever you listen to the show, and it's over at writersroutine.com as well. Keep an eye on our Patreon page. I'll post a discussion at some point through the week. Uh, just like I'm trying to turn it into a social network for writers, I guess. That's a big idea. <laughs> we'll see how that gets on. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, next week, we're chatting to Envy Peacock, Nikki Peacock, about her brand new novel, It's Little Bones. In the meantime, leave us a review on Apple if you get the chance. Make sure you're subscribed on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writerspod. And you can always get in touch with your writing tip at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Envy Peacock on the show. Bye. <laughs>